welcome to the Talent Talks podcast from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. I'm Alan Caesar. My guest today is Janet Grondon. She is the CEO of Stellar Solutions, a systems engineering firm specializing in space vehicle and launch systems. They do everything from telemetry subsystems to mission operations and strategic management. Janet is responsible for strategic management of their global aerospace portfolio. She previously worked for Northrop Grumman, which was her first private sector job after serving 26 years in the United States Air Force in both technical and leadership roles. She graduated from Embry-Riddle's Prescott campus in 1989 with a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering. She also has several master's degrees from the Air Force Institute of Technology and the Air War College and the Air Command and Staff College. Janet, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Alan. This is a true pleasure and an honor to be here. <laughs> All right. Well, um, uh, we'll start with our pre-launch. So we're at T minus four questions. Are you buckled in? I'm buckled in. Let's go. <laughs> what was your favorite place to spend leisure time when you were a student? Yeah, that's a great question. I didn't have a whole lot of leisure time uh, as an engineering student. When I did get a chance to get out, I, I really liked hiking around the area, you know, down in Thumb Butte, around Willow Lake. Um, and then when I could get away for the weekend or for a night or something, um, camping. And uh, we camped in some, I camped with various different friends. We camped in some very remote places. Sometimes it was a lot of fun. Cool. So you went like backpacking? We did. Yeah. I, I remember uh, taking one camping trip with a friend of mine. We were on some forest road somewhere. I don't really don't, probably wasn't even very smart where we were just out the two of us and we just parked the car and pitched a tent and stayed there that night and got up the next day and kept going. We were just sort of, you know, enjoying, uh, enjoying Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. The nighttime skies are just beautiful out there. Mm -hmm, they definitely are. Is there a particular song that takes you back to your Embry-Riddle days when you hear it? Yeah, it has to be uh danger zone it has to be, you know, Tom Cruise. And yeah. So, you know, when I went to Embry-Riddle, we started in 1984, Top Gun just came out, you know, everywhere all over Prescott, young pilot students, you know, in their leather jackets and on their pocket rockets, you know, driving too fast. And it was always very um, nerve wracking to drive around there because between those guys that want to be Tom Cruise and then the retired community, you know, you really didn't know whether you're going to be, you know, behind somebody going 60 or somebody going 20. And <laughs> it was kind of, kind of an interesting time to drive around Prescott. I suppose it still is. Yeah. Pretty high speed differentials there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so what was your uh, go-to late night meal or snack? Well, let's see. Back then we had the cafeteria and we had a pizza place in the gymnasium. Those are the two places you could eat on campus besides the vending machine. After the cafeteria closed, the only thing open typically was the, was the pizza place. And when you got a meal plan, you got a little card where you could get, I don't know what it was, like 30 or 40 pizzas a, a semester. We would pool our our cards together sometimes and go get three or four pizzas. And um, they were, you know, really not good, but we didn't care. <laughs> it was, we didn't care. It was what, what, what we could get. So um, that was kind of a favorite go-to place for us. That's cool. Uh, what was a class or professor that had the sort of the longest lasting impact on you either personally or in your career? Well, Alan, this is the hardest question, you know, that, that you can ask. I had so many great professors. I mean, um, you know, Gary Harrison, I learned, you know, Arrow from him. Dick Newcomb, he taught me how to do engineering drawing. Tracy Dorland was, you know, really the man when it comes to uh, aeronautical engineering. And then 
uh, George and Marsu Haviland, they both taught me. George taught me design. Marsu taught me um, technical writing. But I think the most impactful really uh, came out of the math department, John Jenkins. Hmm. Um, the way he taught math, he taught me to think logically, completely. And he, um, he gave us a lot of practical tips, which I used throughout my career. And I still use some of them today. One, one of the ones that he imparted on us was, you know, he always told us, hey, when you come to a test, you just, it doesn't matter how much you study, there's going to be something you're, you really don't know. So he said, before you step into the classroom, think about what you know and think about what you don't know and spend your time on the stuff you know. I still use that today when I have high level meetings or, you know, you never have enough information, right? So I, I will pause and think, what do I know and what do I don't know? You know, it still helps today. So John, I think, had the, the most impact on me in my career. That's really interesting because that's something that you hear. Uh, I mean, I remember hearing a lot from like classmates in high school is like, you know, complaining about math class. Like, when am I ever going to use this? So it's really interesting to hear somebody <laughs> say, here's a practical thing I got from a math course and a math professor. That's mm -hmm. really cool. And that's definitely an important piece of uh, an important tip. So hopefully any uh, students listening will take this note. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It was, I live by it. All right, so uh, I want to talk uh, about your work at uh, Stellar Solutions, but uh, first I'd like to kind of start with the uh, Air Force. And I saw that you joined, you know, just sort of a couple of years before Operation Desert Storm, which was you know, sort of a heavily air operation. So I'm wondering, uh, to what degree were you involved in that, and did you have did you have any specific tasks related to that? Yeah, thanks for asking about that, Alan. Um... I did. So at, when Desert Storm kicked off, I was working at Tinker Air Force Base. I was a lieutenant, um, an engineer. I uh, worked on the uh, uh, the AWAC system, the E3, which is a big radar uh, airplane with a big radar on it, and they use it to do air traffic management. Um, is that the one you know, that has that deployed. like giant like UFO looking thing attached to the top of it? That's the one. That's okay. the one. Yeah. Okay. And so they deploy that out into, so in the case of Desert Storm, they deploy those um, first in many cases so that they can get out there, set up the air environment and um, vector in all the different planes that are coming from the Air Force, the Navy, allies, whatnot. So that it's really air traffic management in the sky. And of course, some, you know, somebody is going to shoot, uh, shoot at an airplane, obviously they're going to communicate what they see there too. So there's quite a bit going on there with the AWACS, but I got to be, you know, as a second lieutenant and engineer on that platform. And, you know, what I got to do was put together a, a quick, what they call it, it was a rapid prototype, essentially. The, at that time, the Air Force was using a radio called Have Quick. It was a frequency hopping radio that they shared, the Air Force and the AWACS team shared with multiple other users. It allowed the AWACS to talk to um, airplanes, as I was saying, you know, from the Air, from the Air Force and Navy, um, other countries, but they could frequency hop at the same rate and on the same frequencies so they could communicate with each other. And it was a, a very important way to communicate so that the enemy couldn't hear. As we were kicking off Desert Storm, my boss came to me and said, hey, you know, we need a structure to put in the airplane so that we can add the have quick radio to uh, to the AWACS so they can direct traffic on uh, secure communications. And he said, I just need somebody to, you know, to design it and to build a prototype. And then if the prototype works, we're going to fit the radio in it. If it works, we're going to build a bunch of them. We're going to send them on over. So that's what I got to do for Desert Storm. And it took me, I don't know, maybe a couple of days. I got to work in the machine shop with the 
you know, with the guys that put the box together and we verified that it worked and they built a bunch and shipped them off. And that was my contribution to Desert Storm. So it was really kind of cool because, you know, what I, what I learned from that, honestly, was to leverage all of the things I learned at Embry-Riddle because of, you know, we have all those structures, labs, and all the different labs that I worked in. I brought that skill set to bear on active duty and on the, uh, on the mission. And that I was really proud of that. That's really cool. That's really cool. So it, uh, just to make sure I understand this correctly. So you've got the, you've got the, the plane with the radar that's flying around. Mm -hmm. Basically, is it basically acting as sort of like air traffic control, like it is locations, everything. It okay. is. And yep. then everybody's got, uh, everybody's communicating on radio frequencies, but you're changing frequencies constantly so that the enemy can't pick up more than snippets of information. Correct. And you yeah. designed a thing so that everybody could coordinate their frequency hopping so they could stay in communication. Uh, and autom is it automated? Well, now I didn't design the frequency hopping. I wish I did. I, oh, okay. I designed, <laughs> no, this, I was a lieutenant, man. All I did was design a little box to put that frequency hopping radio in. Oh, so okay. It could fit into the airplane. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If I designed the frequency hopping uh, thing, then I would definitely, um, I would. I would probably not be available for this podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> I probably got a private island somewhere spending all my money. Back in Desert Storm, one of the issues we had was really interoperability. So, you know, this Havquick was not actually a standard until everybody mm -hmm. got over into Desert Storm and realized, well, that needed to be the communication standard. So there were a number of airplanes and other devices that I think required some kind of structure to, to put it into the actual aircraft so they could hook it up and use it. And that's essentially what I did. So it was just like a big metal frame so that it could slide into the rack and, and uh, be usable. That's, that's still excellent. I don't mean to diminish your accomplishment. No, no, it's okay. That's awesome. Like it, that <laughs> right. kind of integration is key. And like, especially yeah. for interoperability among different, you know, government, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, military branches. So uh, you spent 26 years in the Air Force, uh, basically at, straight after graduating from Embry-Riddle. Uh, do you have a favorite project that you worked on or job that you had in that span of time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my favorite project had to be uh, GPS, so Global Positioning System. The job was at the right time in my career. I was a lieutenant colonel, so you know, almost 20 years in, getting to be about 20 years in. And I, at that point, now I had the experience, I had the skill set, I had the leadership, and the, of course, the technical, you know, underpinnings for my uh, undergraduate and graduate degrees to actually do the job. And so I was assigned to be the program manager for the ground system. And what a lot of people don't know about GPS-1 is they don't really know that the Air Force buys it and the Air Force flies it, and now it's the Space Force. But what a lot of people also don't know is that the, the real brains of GPS is in the ground system. Hmm. We use a common filter to, to figure out the timing signal that's uploaded to the satellites and then beam back to Earth. And you use triangulation of those uh, signals to be able to figure out where you are. Um, your user equipment, you know, figures that out from the signals it gets from, from the uh, from satellites. And so GPS had been around for quite some time. And I think in Desert Storm really got its uh, its start. Um, the ground system was getting old and needed to be replaced, and so mm -hmm. I got to I got to come in on the tail end of that program, put a new ground system in. Our uh, three star, he said, you know, it's kind of like replacing the engine on the car when you're driving 60 miles an hour down the road. So <laughs> it was a lot of fun, and you know, our whole metric for that for that whole experience was 
um, when we changed over to the new ground system, we didn't want any of our users to uh, be impacted. And mm-hmm. we were successful in that. So it took us about a year and a half to get it all the way through the, the uh, transition and into operations. But it was a, a resounding success uh, because nothing negative happened. Um, and then I followed that job with uh, starting then on the next generation of that ground system almost uh, right away. So that was a real career defining uh, moment, you know, to have those those years in GPS. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and being able to pull off that kind of, you know, sort of uh transition in equipment um, seamlessly. Like I've seen enough, you know, organizations, tech organizations try to do something like that, just migrating content from, you know, one server to another server. And, you know, you run into issues just doing, you know, it's a simple data move, but, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, you end up with either sites slowing down or think components don't work and so on. So one that you're able to pull that off um, without negatively impacting the, the, you know, the system that's excellent and yeah the, the 60 miles an hour replacing the engine at 69 miles an hour is that sounds about right that sounds about right yeah and I, you know i think that's where i learned i really ended up in my dream job i really learned that the right people the right job the right experience and and technical background but also a curiosity and an, and an interest in the mission when your heart's in it you know you can go the extra mile um you can get amazing things done so that whole project was way bigger than anybody on the team or even the team itself. And it was so much fun to be part of. And of course, it's always more fun to be part of a successful project, right? So, um, but that, that was, that was a great, I really enjoyed that, that part of my, my career. Um, do you mind if I uh, dig in a little bit on the technical side of GPS? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I'll so, go as deep as I can, Alan. So. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm just like trying to fully understand what you're what you're talking about with the ground systems mm-hmm. and uh, the user, de- you know, compared to you know your user device, your phone, your little GPS tracker that you carry around. Yeah. So if I'm understanding you correctly, so you, you have ground systems that are communicating with the satellites that help with the triangulation, and is your location on your personal device is that basically comparing? the the signals that the other fixed ground stations are receiving comparing them to yours is that what's going on no it's a little different it's a little different than that so uh, at the heart of it gps is actually a timing signal and okay. so the timing signal is is uploaded to the satellites um the satellites then turn and broadcast that back to the earth and so what your what your gps unit is doing is it's getting that timing signal, but it's getting from multiple satellites so it can triangulate your location. And let's say it's on your phone, right? You're looking at your GPS location through an app. Somebody has overlaid um, a map app, right? And now you see a little blue dot. That blue dot is coming from triangulating multiple uh, GPS satellite emissions. And that that's how that works. And they need that upload every so often to to find the true location of the satellite. When you upload, you're basically telling the satellite, okay, here's the most current information. And then over time, it sort of degrades a little bit and then you, you update it again. So it's it's the way the satellites understand where where they are, maybe not in relation to each other, but in, in sense of time. Okay. Um, so I think, I think I'm probably getting beyond what I'm, I mean, I don't want to sound, I don't want to say something that doesn't, that isn't true from a, you know, it, it's a time. It is a timing signal, and so what happens is it'll, it'll get uploaded to the satellite, beams it to the ground, and then we do have stationary um, receivers that get that signal, and then they, from the timing signal coming from the satellite, they can figure out exactly where that satellite is, sends the information. You know, basically 
sends, says, okay, yeah, I, I heard from satellite A at this time, it sent this message, that information goes back to the ground segment and the ground segment gets that from all of the stationary worldwide um, receivers and then recalculates, okay, where, you know, where are the satellites actually located and, and how do they adjust the message, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Because it's, it's all precision timing, like you said. And so knowing exactly where the satellite is relative to the fixed points on earth. Um, That's how it works. Right. Okay. Yeah. It, 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 without the fixed points on earth, it doesn't work. I saw in the mid mid nineties, you led a technical team that was reviewing design proposals for the new Delta four rockets. Tell me like, what do those proposals look like at that point? And like, what do you think about it from sort of an engineer's perspective? Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, I can tell you working, you know, early in my career. So I was a captain. I was only about four or five years into, um, into the air force. And previously I was working airplanes, which is really cool. I went kicking and screaming to space. I was like, I don't want to work space. Um, but then they put me in a rocket program. I was like, well, that's kind of cool. You know, I might be able to enjoy that. So early work with rockets launching, you know, it was really a lot of fun, but I, I kind of, I wanted more. So the first program they sent me to really, they were launching GPS satellites. And so it was a lot of fun. I got to go to the Cape. I got to see that happen, but I wanted a little bit more. So I started looking around at, okay, what else can I do? And, and we were starting this Delta four program. It was all about uh, starting from a clean sheet approach. It was a new way of contracting. You know, in the past, the government paid for everything. And then we kind of monitored what the contractors were doing. This time with Delta four, they used a a different, what they call a other transaction agreement. And essentially both Lockheed Martin and, well, actually four, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, McDonnell Douglas, and I forget the fourth one now, but um, they all put their own money into designing this rocket. And the, then the government also put some money in. So what that meant was we were allowed to go down and watch them build the, you know, design it and provide feedback back to the headshed in the government, but we weren't allowed, none of our team was allowed to actually help them figure out how to design it. And so that actually was pretty cool because what I got to do was sit in a room with scientists from, I mean, I'm talking about guidance and the best guidance and control people in the world, the best structures people, the best propulsion people. I mean, these this, this was top talent because, you know, these companies were putting their own money in and they wanted this to be successful. So I got to watch them build a rocket from scratch, basically, and um, talk to you know some of the people that were in the room when I was uh, monitoring and, and assessing the rocket design, along with many technical support people that I had on my team. Some of those folks are running companies now that are launching rockets, and they're, they're in charge, and it's, it's pretty cool. Honestly, what I learned from that was you have to ask for your dream job sometimes. And sometimes you don't even know what it is. Like I said, I went kicking and screaming to space and then they put me in rockets, which I thought was kind of cool. And then the next thing you know, I'm working with people that later are essentially running major parts of the space industry. So I would have never in a million years when I was at Embry-Riddle even scripted that, that future for myself. So you just have to sort of follow your curiosity sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm curious about, um, you know, uh, being in the air force for such a long span of time and that, you know, there were a lot of sort of milestones in air force history while you were there, like uh, Jeannie Levitt becoming the first female fighter pilot in 1993. 
And I wonder if you noticed any changes in the culture around those milestones, or if you noticed any significant shift toward inclusion and diversity in your time there? Yeah, Alan, I would say, you know, first and foremost, our industry is is really behind with the diversity, equity, and inclusion. It was great to see, you know, the first female fighter pilot. You know, honestly, when I graduated in 1989, I didn't think that I'd ever see that. So for it to happen just four years later was was awesome, but we still have a ways to go. And, you know, I think about Miami Riddle time and where we had international students, you know, that was that was really something that now students desire that and when they go look at a campus and that's what they want, they want to make sure they have diversity and international. You know, it was something that Embry-Riddle was doing. I didn't even understand the value of it at the time. You know, I had a roommate from Jamaica, friends from Hungary, from all over the world. And that gave me a perspective early in my life that I didn't realize, you know, until later. And now I'm part of a company that's committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I draw on some of that early experience as an undergraduate, you know, in military and industry engagement as well. But I understand why we need to bring in talent with diverse viewpoints. I like to think of what we do at Stellar, for example, is solving the hard problems. And they're just getting harder and harder. You know, it was hard to get the space shuttle up. It was hard to get the Hubble up. It was hard to get the James Love up. Now we're talking about going to the moon and Mars. Those are even more challenging. So, you know, we need everybody to come to the table. And I think, you know, while the space industry is really just exploding in all areas, commercial, government, uh, the international scene, there's so many things going on that that we need everybody uh, pitching in. It's cool to be able to relate that back to, you know, my experience in Embry-Riddle. Yeah, yeah. Um, and well, so I saw that, um, you know, that Stellar Solutions being a, a woman-owned business in this industry that is majority uh, male, Celeste Ford being your founder, starting this company up in 1995, uh, when, you know, the gender disparity was uh, uh, even larger than it is now. And, you know, with with your experience in aerospace, um, do you find uh, any differences about how Stellar is run than other places that you've worked? Is there is there anything specific about it that you can point to? Oh, absolutely. Uh, thank you for that question, Alan. So, you know, I, I don't know of any other company in our industry that really is all about putting people in their dream jobs and solving customer critical needs. That was Celeste's vision when she started the company 26 years ago, and and it's still true today. It's still our vision. And what's even more unique, I think, is it it's how we manage. We ask our employees, are you in your dream job? If not, what's it going to take? What do we need to do to get you in your dream job? And, you know, you'll find that uh, somebody might be in their dream job one day and then situations change and they maybe they're curious about something new and they go looking, you know, at, in another program or something. They're, you know what, I think I want to do that. And then so we work with them to, to get them where they want to go. That just doesn't happen in most com- companies. Um, I, I don't know if it happens outside of our industry because I, I really haven't done much outside of our industry, but I, I think we're, we're unique in that fashion. And that's just traces right back to Celeste and her vision you know, years ago. Yeah. Now, and you, uh, you know, Stellar Solutions has also won awards for best places to work. And so that's, that's not the kind of thing that happens by accident, right? You know, and so um, I imagine what you were just talking about is part of that. Uh, can you talk about maybe what some other things that make this a great place to work or kinds of things that you put into, you know, running the business? For many of the last eight years, you know, we've been the best small, medium place to work for the Fortune 500 club and um, we do win national, regional awards. Uh, 
quite a few Silicon Valley awards because that's where our headquarters is. That's where Celeste is located and because of our, you know, our innovative team. So we benchmark ourselves. One, you know, one of the things you're asking, what do we do? Well, one of the things is we benchmark ourselves um, against high-performing companies. We want to be a high-performing company, not a high-performing small woman-owned business in space, right? We want to benchmark ourselves against everybody. And I think when we do that, you know, we really strive in ways that maybe if we set the bar lower, we we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't have some of the award-winning benefits, for example, that we have or satisfied employees. So we do survey employees twice a year, once anonymously, once with their names attached. And we learn a lot from those surveys. We learn a lot from our customer surveys every year. And we take action and make sure that we address and cover down on the on the concerns that our employees and our our customers have. What's it like being a CEO versus being an engineer? Well, I would say I've kind of become a systems engineer over time. And so I suppose I, I approached the CEO job as kind of a big systems engineering problem. If I were to, to really tell you how I do it. I think the biggest, the biggest difference is when you have an engineering problem, you know, you almost, there's, there's an answer somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, you might have a technical glitch or, you know, maybe, you, you know, a couple of parts don't, mate well or whatever the case may be. When you're dealing with people and customers and money and that type of thing, there's no answer in the back of the book. The systems engineering approach still still works. Um, you have to take everybody into account, but things change all the time. Um, you know, just take a, a, a shift in the administration and where, where funding is going, right? Mm. So um, a great example is a lot of funding is going towards environmental now um, with uh, President Biden in office. And that's a shift from where funding was going for some of the same kinds of programs um, where funding was going, you know, a couple of years ago with the Trump administration. So it's something that you have to take into account and, you know, you have to, you have to treat it as though you can't get excited about it, right? This is, this is the way it is. And so you have to sort of understand the truth and, and deal with it now. So I, I watched a bit of a keynote speech that you gave at the uh, IEEE conference uh, in 2021 on crossing boundaries. Mm-hmm. And you started talking about uh, sort of the software hardware boundary, and you expanded that to talk about sort of the changing meaning of the term astronaut and how some astronauts are now, they're not flight test engineers anymore. They're, you know, or not all of them are, you know, there may be business people and uh, wealthy individuals and how that uh, the change in the human profile of the space crew um, affects the type of controls or human machine interfaces that uh, engineers need to consider when building spacecraft. Um, can you talk a bit about how you consider this in, you know, in some project uh, that you've worked on recently at, at Stellar? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I would say Stellar in my entire career. So my career in the Air Force, really in space, was was in the ground systems. A lot of people think about space; they think about the spacecraft. I think about the spacecraft as kind of a robot. You know, they're really operated by people on the ground. I guess some could probably be autonomously operated, but, you know, you can't go out, you can't go change the oil on a satellite, right? You're just, you're, you're right. just not out there. Early in my career, you know, we we built um, we built those ground systems or, or industry built those ground systems for, they didn't, they thought about the operators kind of last, you know, it was all about, hey, can I get the satellite to work? Can I get it on the launch vehicle? Can I get it up to orbit and actually have it work? And then somewhere along the line, they said, oh yeah, and somebody's going to have to decipher the information we get back from it 
they didn't put any real thought into it. The early ground stations that I saw, they actually had ones and zeros sort of floating you know, across the screen and a trained operator looking at those ones and zeros, they had to figure out if a bit was flipped somewhere to understand if the spacecraft was having an anomaly. That's how they, that's how they, yeah, it was something to see. When I came on the scene, those were just starting to go away and we were starting to bring in new, new things, which were more like file structures, what you might see on you know, on your on your laptop 20 years ago. And those poor 18-year-old airmen that were trying to fly the satellites, you know, we're still delivering them stuff that was like two decades behind what they were used to seeing. So now, you know, what I saw in my industry, my previous industry experience, and now at Stellar as well, that the industry is now thinking of the operator ahead of time, because now the operators aren't just really looking for anomalies, but some of them are also conducting military operations. And there's a lot more going on in space than there used to be. And so now we actually have the graphical interfaces built by people with um, a STEAM mindset, you know, not just STEM, but also the arts, so that they can pull the truth data, digital truth data out of the machine, so to speak, out of the computer, so to speak, and bring it to the forefront in an intuitive fashion so operators can can absorb way more information and be able to think and act uh, more quickly based on on what's being presented to them. So it's it's a much more interesting field than it used to be. That probably do uh, you know build games and whatnot are perfect for this kind of work. Um, and there's a lot of work like this uh, out there because we have a lot of satellites on orbit. Yeah. Um, well, so I, I wanted to also ask you about, um, you know, sort of the transitioning from uh, the military to working at private companies. And I've, I've heard that that can be a big adjustment. And I'm sure that a number of our alumni, as well as students who are listening, um, are either going through this right now or contemplating it in the future. And I wonder if that was difficult for you or not. Was there a moment when you thought this is harder than I expected? This is easier than I expected? Um, is there a surprising moment for you? Yeah, there's, I've thought both that this is harder and this is easier. <laughs> so it kind of depends on the moment. You know, one of the things I learned uh, coming into industry after the military is one of the differences is, is really how you empower people. My last job in the, in the military, for example, you know, I kind of had free reign to, to organize the way that I wanted. I flattened the organizational structure. I created an entrepreneurial environment, clarified roles and responsibilities. And that's and that allowed me to push down a lot of decision making because, you know, when I first when I first came into that job, I, I kind of looked around and some of the lieutenants were waiting for the lieutenant colonels to come out of the colonel's office to figure out what they're going to do next. I'm like, you know, that's just that's just not a fun job if you're a lieutenant. That's not the way we, we want to do it. So we ended up with a really dynamic organization. Project officers had their fingers on the reins of their hands on the reins of some projects and and. Um, and they then they got some great experience, but it took getting that flattened organization structure and getting things moving a little bit quicker to make that happen. So a lot of those guys now are and gals are now lieutenant colonels and GS fifteens and they're they're running the, the Space Force now, which is pretty cool. But what I what I took away from that, I mean that's the way I wanted to work, wanted to work in industry. And my first attempt at that really didn't didn't work well. It was um, not really compatible with the with the culture. And so I found that that stellar was way, the culture was made way more compatible with, with that particular experience and what I liked um, in the way of empowering people. I think because of that, I 
you know, when I joined, I, I kind of feel like I'm at home here. And, and to a large degree, it takes me back to my Amber Riddle roots where, you know, I remember, you know, standing in the structures lab and thinking, are they really going to let me run all this equipment without a professor here to, you know, to, to, to look over my shoulder? And we were empowered and we were, you know, encouraged to go um, work in the lab, you know, stress test our specimens, you know, hook up the wind tunnel, try, you know, I think having that experience early before I even had a job was foundational for me. And I, I'm really happy to have had that start. And, I, and I'm really happy to be in a company where that's part of our culture. And so as a CEO now, I'm very protective of that part of our culture because it is part of what inspires our employees to, to come to work every day. That's really cool. And now uh, there's one other uh, sort of thing I'm I wanted to know about is that so English is my second language. And so the way that people talk is always fascinating to me. And I always feel like especially out of my depth when I'm talking to people in the military, because, you know, there's abbreviations, there's acronyms, there's all kinds of you know rank structures that I don't, you know, don't know all that much about. And they're different for each branch. Um, and it just feels very foreign. And I uh, while we're still speaking English, it still feels very foreign. <laughs> and so I wonder if uh, you felt that way going in the other direction, is there language related to working in the private sector that was new to you or something that you say, uh, did you ever say something, you know, in a room and people looked at you like you had two heads? Oh, yeah. More than once. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and yeah, it, and it, it's the worst feelings. You're like, what What did I say? You know, I, I used the wrong word. And, and I did learn that that at, at certain places, the, the language of the, of the organization really matters. But, you know, again, I think I go back to the Embry-Riddle and the, and the international aspect of Embry-Riddle that early, and again, I, I didn't realize it at the time, right? But I learned early that people came to Embry-Riddle from various places in the world, different languages, and that collaboration can happen whether the communication is, you know, is difficult or not. But you have to put like-minded people together that, you know, that want to solve problems and want to figure it out. And if you treat each other with respect and, you know, that's what, that's what helps get through that. Communication barriers should never really stand in the way, I don't think, of making progress and improving people's lives because, you know, I just, I think it takes patience. I hope no one ever makes you feel bad about not understanding the military jargon because, you know, it doesn't, you're not a special person because you understand. It's just that that's where you happen to, to be most of your life. You know, just because you don't understand it doesn't mean you don't have something to contribute. And I think that's something that I learned early was, you know, make sure that communication barriers don't stop you from getting to know people and, and uh, working with them. All right. Well, you've worked all over the country. So I feel like I have to ask uh, LA or DC. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll be happy to know that's a great question. I have uh, a place in LA and a place in DC. So, so I think the answer is yes. I love them both. I can't pick. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, what skills do you think are critical in succeeding in your line of work? Well, I think I, co I covered a few of those already, but um, mm. ab absolutely has to be leadership and, and technical skill. And I think, you know, to add to that, a curiosity about, you know, what you're doing so that you're constantly always looking for that dream job and making progress. Yeah. And so if you could go back in time and give yourself, uh, your younger self, a piece of advice, what would it be? Well, I think it would be be bold, be curious, be yourself. I look back on my younger days and I think, yeah, I could have really could have been more bold all along the way. You know, that's what I would say. Don't hold back. All right, Janet, are you ready for the splashdown? 
I am. What was uh, that one experience that got your heart hooked on aerospace? Well, I had to be um, flying with my dad. Uh, my dad was a private pilot. He he built his own airplane oh, cool. um, from scratch. Yeah, from plans. Um, not a not a kit. And um, he built it. He started building it in his basement, in our basement, and um, finished it up in uh, a shop that he built specifically to to finish that airplane up. And then um, in between, he would take me up in his in his Cessna. But eventually, I got to ride in. It was a Starduster two. And it took him 17 years to build that plane, but uh, it was, yeah, it, I shared that love. And, and I think really just the incredible sense of, uh, I don't know, human accomplishment when it comes yeah. terms to, you know, to be able to fly. It just, when you look at an airplane, you think I shouldn't be able to fly, but they do. <laughs> and we all know why i have a degree in why that why that works right but uh, it's right. still it's still every airplane i see in the in the air is still something is a beauty to behold in my opinion yeah yeah well and you can see that here on campus as well you know whenever whenever any airplane is going overhead you know the students look up into the you know even people come out of the office when they hear something unusual um and have a look at see what's flying overhead as we're recording this the daytona 500 was this past weekend and so of course the you know the fighter jets are going over for it you know, and they're doing practice flights over it so every, you know people are regularly going outside and i was working on my car and i saw one of them going right over my house that's awesome <laughs> I still do that. I still, if I hear a plane, I'm like, I can't, I can't not look up. It's, it's just what you do. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So what's a book that's been important or influential for you? So that's a great question. Um, the one that I picked uh, for today is, is a book called Execution. It's by Larry Cassidy and Ram Sharon. And uh, the reason I like this book is they, they define the, the term execution and I can't remember the exact definition, but it but what it boils down to is, you know, execution is about discovering the truth and acting on it, which I think is great for any any endeavor in your life. If you don't know the truth, how can you choose the right path to go fix something, to go build something? That's always that's stuck with me through all of the different jobs that I've had and projects that I've worked on that you know, when, and sometimes you uncover the truth and you don't really want to deal with it. Right. You know, so, so the other piece of it, acting on it sometimes can be hard. You know, at the end of the day, you need both pieces to, to really make progress. Yeah. So who's your favorite cartoon character to completely turn it around on you? It has to be Elastigirl in the Incredibles, Holly oh, Hunter. Yeah. I want to be able to do that, you know, stretch from, you know, the moon to the earth. She's amazing. So I love Holly Hunter. She's great. But Elastigirl is fantastic. It was a perfect persona for her. And I'd love for it to be my persona. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was really great. I, I couldn't see that and not see some sort of echo of like, you know, it indicates how much is expected of uh, moms and women. They need to be flexible enough to do everything and stretch to do everything. And it, I, I thought that was, you know, interesting way to sort of visualize that in a superpower. I would agree. I think that's exactly what a lot of women feel like. We're starting to work together to make that not be the case for everybody, but it's still, it's, it's a lot. And it's great to have a family, great to have a career. But yeah, sometimes you stretch a little thin, but we all make it work because we want right. to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we have, and we have a lot of support, I will say. You know, so most of us have, have quite a bit of support. That's good. That's good. 
Um, now, if you can go to the Olympics and compete in any sport, what would you choose? Well, that's easy. Bobsledding. So, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's that combination of you, you get to go fast, which everybody in aviation wants to go fast, of course. And, uh, you know, you got to be technically accurate because it's, it's pretty unforgiving, you know, sport. But uh -huh. um, you get to use your whole body, your brain, your whole body. And um, I just, it just looks like a lot of fun to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, bobsled is a little bit, uh, a little bit more forgiving than like the skeleton though, where you're going face first on that little, that little yeah, bitty thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure, but yeah, I didn't pick that one. <laughs> I've taken some face plants in my day and I, I yeah, I'm not, that doesn't sound like, that didn't look like quite as much fun. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you could live for a week as any person in history, who would it be? I think it would be Martin Luther King Jr. Um, you know, I just finished reading a couple of his books. I, it's interesting because I've celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day many times. And I, and this year, I thought I need to read really his writings. And, and I, I did early, you know, young, when I was younger. Mm -hmm. But now that I've been through part of my career and reading some of his books, I just have so much more of an appreciation of what he did, you know, that when he was leading in our nation's history, that really transformation of um, the country we were and now the country that we are becoming really started with him. He didn't just change people's lives in that period of time. He, he's changed the course of history and, and lives forever. So I would just love to know what that feels like if I could be in his shoes for even just a, a few days. I'd love to know what that feels like. Reading his books, he, uh, he, he understood I think the impact he was having on future generations, I just think that's fascinating. Yeah, that's, that's that is certainly a pivotal figure in history. Well, uh, thanks very much, Janet. That's the last thing I've got for you. Thanks for joining us for the Talent Talks podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Alan. It was really a pleasure and uh, go Eagles. Go Eagles. Uh, this episode of Talent Talks is a production of the Embry-Riddle Office of Philanthropy and Alumni Engagement and the students at WIKD Radio. We're coming at you from my office at Embry-Riddle in Daytona Beach, Florida. And Janet, where are we reaching you? Chantilly, Virginia. Excellent. Uh, this episode was uh, recorded uh, by me and edited by Cindy Puckett and the students at Wicked. Uh, Michelle Day is our program manager. Edmund Odarte is executive director of alumni engagement. And Tony Brown is executive director of communications. Please send us your thoughts about our show. Visit alumni.erau.edu slash podcast and click the feedback link. I read all your messages. Thanks for downloading us. We'll see you next time.